Well, shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Late Late Show with uh, yours truly, Noel Hadley, and this is the Unexpected Cosmology. I love chess. I need to be careful about saying things like that because I don't want anyone to think I am justifying my loves of the world. If if somebody could show me uh, that something is, you know, worldly or evil or whatever, I don't want any part of it. I want to live a set apart life. Uh, if you would have spoken to the Noel from five years ago, I would have given you very different, uh, some very different ideas uh, or conclusions that I've come to now. Um, back in the, back, in the, I'll probably be talking about this later as we go through chess in the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, the Noel from five years ago, if you would have pointed out that the Freemasons claim chess is their baby, uh, I would have said, "See, there it is, right there. All the reason to throw it out." Um, but now I see that they, you know, our inheritors uh, claim many things as their own. And uh, it's called controlled opposition for a reason. Uh, the best example I can give, and I've given this many times before, is that uh, the Pope of Rome holds the Bible to his bosom. And uh, right there, that is enough evidence for many people to say that the Bible is for controlling the masses, and that needs to be thrown out. And I'm of the completely opposite opinion. Uh, the, the, it only makes sense to me that the our controllers are going to take the truth and they're going to try to control it in every way possible. It's all part of the game. So let's look at this chest in the Millennial Kingdom. I'll get right into this. I hope you guys enjoy this tonight. I As much as I just was, uh, I think you guys are going to never look at chess the same way again. I really don't. Uh, even if you come to a, maybe a different conclusion that maybe you're not on board with the millennial kingdom having already happened on the earth. I still think that I have imperative information in here. That's going to really just, some of you are going to be excited by this. So chess in the millennial kingdom by Noel Joshua Halley, yours truly. I wrote that on 118, 2024. Wow. Uh, January's already gone. Where did the time go? We're already in February. Chess is nothing short of an esoteric masterpiece. <laughs> oh no, Noel's talking about something esoteric again. Somebody try to stop him before he gets too esoteric on the masses. Freemasonry claims it as their own, though I'm here to tell you that the game is totally legit and already have managed to lose a certain percentage of my audience. Supposing you've survived the first couple of sentences, then welcome. We are here to learn something new. Look, I've come to care less what the Lodge brothers claim as their own. They may be our controllers, but they're also the inheritors. If they want to take credit for anything, then let's be honest. Monopoly is more up their alley. Because they own everything, along with the Zionists and the Jesuits. And am I missing anyone? Probably a lot of people. But, you know, those are the big three, right? You and I are the dog and the wheelbarrow and the hobo shoe moving around the board, breathing a sigh of relief if we manage to pass go and collect $200 without falling into debt for properties we never asked to rent or straight up run, which we never asked to rent to begin with, or straight up running into the buttons and landing in jail, but I digress. Now we see a lot of um, some of my medieval artwork collection here, a lot of chess players, we see kings playing, uh, dignitaries. Uh, we see a uh, lot of a uh, lot of pictures of men and women playing chess together, which I find really interesting. And you know, they they talk about how romance is a creation of the Middle Ages. That's something else I haven't touched on or written on. I find that really fascinating as well. Coming to the point, it is my personal opinion that higher minds invented the game. And you darn well know who I mean by that. Can you imagine sitting across the checkerboard from one of those uh, resurrected saints? It's your move, mortal. Try not to embarrass yourself by widowing your queen in under 10 moves. Checkmate. So, yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if what I'm saying is correct, then chess was created by higher intelligent minds, thousands of moves beyond our own, being able to see all the different potentials. I mean, try try playing a game with somebody like that. 
there were various versions during the Dark Ages, one of which included something called uh, Nefetafel. It was a Viking favorite. Nefetafel, I think I pronounced that correct. And I'm, you can see here I'm clipping from Wikipedia. The Vikings were the sons of Dan, though I am not prepared to talk about their version of the game quite yet. So they're saying, look, the Vikings had their own version of chess. It was different than the other versions of chess. But there were a lot of different uh competitors during this time. The stunning part about the history of chess is that it can be traced back nearly 1,500 years from our own century, specifically the 6th century. Are you kidding me? Try not to drift off in class. That's right on par with the book I wrote on the 7,000-year timeline deception, which I just came out with a couple weeks ago, by the way. It's fresh off the press. According to the scriptural passage I was able to track down, the Millennial Kingdom began in the 6th century, not a coincidence. So my 7,000-year timeline uh, deception thesis is based off of scripture. Uh, I'm not coming up, I'm not bringing out a calculator for you guys. I'm not being clever. I'm just showing you scripture, and it says that Yehusha HaMashiach showed up in the year 5,500. We know that. I mean, I'm sorry, he didn't show up. He was resurrected in 5,500. That would be 30 AD. And that in uh, 6,000, the Millennial Kingdom would be ushered in. And we see that with my series on 536, 537, 541, so on and so forth. That's right on the mark. That's when the Phoenix happened. And then we see chess show up. And it became a worldwide sensation, like overnight. It just exploded. But then chess was called, back then, chess was called Chaturanga and derived from India. This is according to the official narrative, of course. Lots of sons of Yashua in India and the Far East. Taom, that'd be Thomas, was martyred there. And I haven't covered too much about India, but you see a lot of Millennial Kingdom structures there too. So I don't have a problem. So what if it started in India? You know, it had to start somewhere, right? But then it became a staple of Muslim culture. And subs uh, I spoke last week on Muhammad. And subsequently, Europe via its introduction into Spain and Italy. That, that last sentence is most likely BS. I mean, how in the world do they know? I, I don't know how they knew that it came down through Spain and Italy up in Europe. It's like, like the land bridge theory or something. I'm simply quoting from Wiki, and it's what our official storytellers would have us believe. Now, they can show me good evidence for that. I, how do they even know that's the order of how the dominoes fell? It's, it's all conjecture, no doubt based upon the budget afforded to us in Jesuit history. What are the odds that the oldest and most preserved chess set derives from Scotland? That's ground zero if Ephraim territory, baby, in case you were wondering. Land of kilt wearers and the unicorn people. The Lewis chessmen were discovered in 1831. That's the picture you're looking at there. Cool, uh, cool little fun factor. If you're, if any uh, chess collectors out there, you have like eccentric taste, you can actually get a Lewis chessman replica of the, of the, the oldest known complete chess that we have. That'd be kind of cool to play chess with that. Uh, so it was discovered in 1831. That's right in the mud flood territory when a lot of things were being rediscovered and then dated to the 12th century. Each piece is carved from walrus tusks. The only mystery here is why uh, there aren't more chess pieces to be found since it was a worldwide phenomenon. Why aren't we finding more of them? But I think I already know the answer to that one. The resurrected saints packed their chessboards into the saddle when they rode off for the port, taking the last ship out of town towards the hidden wilderness. Oops, I did it again. I gave you another book reference right there, the hidden wilderness, one, another one of mine. Well, it's the kingdom verse where uh, it's it's the it's in the multiverse. It's the kingdom verse we're dealing with. Chess wasn't simply a game; it was a very expression of the divine soul as I hope to show, and it certainly didn't hurt to be mobile, meaning we see all these pictures of they would take these chess boards with them. They would go out to the country. They'd go to all these places, and they were playing chess everywhere, playing them in castles. They are taking them to their friend's house, and uh, maybe they just packed it up with them, and they left. That's why we don't have many of them left. Some of my non-esoteric -es readers will point out the part where Wiki claims chess, quote, evolved into its current form by 1500. That will be seen as an admission of guilt. The chess was simply invented after the Millennial Kingdom as a patsy so that the history writers could cover their tracks and make it seem occult-like. Adorable. You can think whatever you want. I won't try to stop you. Really, go ahead. Keep on thinking that. I don't mind in the slightest. I read a statement such as that to 
one to mean the inhabitants of the kingdom introduced the game. Furthermore, toying around with different versions of the game, but then nothing developed after 1500, when the last of them got up to leave. The inheritors then claimed it as their own. The Freemasons certainly did. Now, I need to point out to you that the checkerboard is divided into squares of light and dark. Light and dark is a telltale sign of opposites, and that right there is dualism. A cosmic battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness are being waged. Dualism is an undeniable theme of the millennial kingdom because wherever the Torah abides, we are faced with rebellion in direct confrontation with obedience. Uh, if you follow my Torah portions over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that straight up. And Paul talks about that in, in what was it, Romans 3 or wherever, where he says, wherever the Torah is introduced, wherever the Torah is, there is rebellion. We see that with Korah. As soon as, like we saw that tonight, if you follow my Torah portions, everyone stands in front of Mount Sinai and they say, whatever you say, Yahuwaha, we will agree to it. Just tell us what to do. We will agree to it. And then he starts telling them what his laws are. And they're like, we're not doing, <laughs> we're not doing that. And they all started rebelling against it. So there is dualism. Wherever there is the Torah, there is rebellion. If you give a man a command, even a righteous man, he will be reminded of his will to either obey or disobey. He is given the free choice to perform either will, good or evil, the blessing or the curse. Here on the material plane, his choices are constrained by the physical law, that being the game rules and the playing board. Nothing in chess is outright predetermined, though I am still willing to be wrong about that one. Rather than seeing the pieces as individual humans and the hands that guide them higher ethereal beings, as it's often portrayed, the cosmic battle of chess can perhaps more appropriately be viewed as one in which every character reflects the individual, working harmoniously as cogwheels of his consciousness to purge the evil from within. Okay, so did you guys get that? So a person who is maybe a little bit more of an exoteric thinker might, you know, see this as actually like military pieces and different, you know, people and stuff like that. But on a more esoteric level, every scene, like whether you pick the red team or the black team or the black or the white team, uh, every single piece on there, the king, the queen, the bishop, the pawn, the rook, uh, the, they're, uh, they're all representative of you. They're different facets of who you are and everything needs to work in unison in order to, be a whole person. So we're going to look more at that tonight. Here is a picture of everyone's favorite master of ceremonies, Manly P. Hall, looking creepy as hell. But which one is he? I've just given you a police lineup, and it's nearly impossible distinguishing him from doppelganger Vincent Price. Could it be? I, I seriously was like freaking out when I was looking at that. So I was like, wait a second. Manly P. Hall looks just like Vincent Price. Like they look exactly alike. And like no matter how many pictures you look at. Manly lived and died between 1901 and 1990. Whereas 1911 through 1993, which is pretty close, is attributed to Vincent. Hmm. Well, let's not get distracted by actor roles because I'm about to quote from Manly. Had I quoted from Vincent, then we'd be discussing Michael Jackson's thriller, but no, which is also Mandela effect, by the way. But today's discussion is chess, by which Manly and Vincent may be the same person acting out two players for all I know. Why am I doing it? Because if I don't quote from Manly, somebody else will in the rebuttal. Meaning that, like, if I talk about how esoteric chess is, somebody's going to, you know, some AI bot's going to show up in the YouTube discussion feed, whatever, and they're going to you know, start giving all these Manly P. Hall quotes. So I might as well do it. Of course, I'll be doing it uh, as if to make it out like I'm hiding the Masonic connection from you when clearly I'm not. I mean, clearly Manly P. Hall was as Masonic as they get, right? He's one of our controllers, one of our inheritors. Now, this is actually a quote from Manly P. Hall. <clears throat> Let's see. I just skipped ahead here. Okay. In its symbolism, chess is... The, is the most significant of all games. It has been called the royal game, the pastime of kings. Like the, the remember now, we're dealing with a, with a a kingdom of well, kings and priests. Like the tarot cards, the chessmen represent the elements of life and philosophy. The game was played in India and China long before its introduction to Europe. We saw that with Wikipedia. Eastern Indian princes were wont to sit on the balconies of their palaces and play chess with living men 
standing upon a checkerboard pavement of black and white marble in the courtyard below. Such an odd phrase there, living men. Play with living men. When Like, like oh, I, I really want to play Monopoly with living men. I mean, who, who talks like that? It is popularly believed that the – I want to play Uno with living men. Someone have a Nintendo because I want to play Nintendo with living men. It is popularly believed that the Egyptian pharaohs played chess, but an examination of their sculpture and illuminations has led to the conclusion that the Egyptian game was a form of draughts. So he's saying that he he's saying here that, and in fact, to this day, there have been many historians who have claimed that chess was not invented in the 600s, uh, that it goes way back, but there's actually no evidence for it. And that's what he's saying right here, that it was actually, it was something slightly different. In China, chessmen are often carved to represent warring dynasties as the Manchu and the Ming. All right, Manly P. Hall. Pause. I have more to quote from him. This commercial break is brought to you by Freemasonry again. Brother Manly was a Club 33 member, and here we have him attempting to sell us on the ancient origins of the game, implying Kane culture is the culprit. Oh, I'm sure games were played all throughout the ancient world. Just show me evidence that chess was it. Seeing as how chess is an undeniable reflection of the mysteries, there may have been close competitors, all right? So that, that's, a, that's the problem when you're dealing with the mysteries of heaven. Uh, if I were to tell you something like pre-existence, and you're like, well, look, no, look at all these other religions that talk about pre-existence. Okay, doesn't make it wrong. It just means that they're all looking at the same source material, claiming it is their own. You're going to see a lot of things like that um, when, you, when you dig into them. I don't know and couldn't say as I wasn't there. What does seem likely, as I have already stated, is that chess exploded onto the world scene at the advent of the quote-unquote Dark Ages continuing. Here's Manley speaking again. The chessboard consists of 64 squares, alternately black and white, and symbolize the floor of the House of Mysteries. Uh-oh. As we know, that's, you know, all about the, you know, Masonic halls. Upon this field of existence or thought move a number of strangely carved figures, each according to fixed law. The White King is or or uh, or moods the black king Araman, and upon the plains of cosmos the great war between light and darkness is fought throughout all the ages of the philosophical constitution of man the kings represent the spirit the queens the mind the bishops the emotions the knights the vitality the castles or rooks the physical body we'll be dissecting each of these the pieces upon the king's sides are positive those upon the queen's side negative the pawns are the sensory impulses and perceptive faculties, the eight parts of the soul. That's fascinating. The white king in his suit symbolize the self and its vehicles. The black king in his retinue, the not self, the false eagle, and its legion. The game of chess thus sets forth the eternal struggle of each part of man's compound nature against the shadow of itself. The nature of each of the chessmen is revealed by the way in which it moves. Geometry is the key to their interpretation. For example, the castle, the body, moves on the square. The bishop, the emotions, move on the slants. The king, being the spirit, cannot be captured, but loses the battle when so surrounded that it cannot escape. Manly P. Hall. All right. The floor of the House of the Mysteries as a reference to the Masonic Lodge. Boring. But then we read of a Ormuds and Araman. He's quoting from a Zoro. It's getting late, guys. A Zoroastrian pamphlet of some sort. Ormuz is the creator, whereas Araman stands opposed to him, according to Zoroastrian, uh, the Zoroastrian religion, using his power for evil rather than good, more dualism. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, Manley's following description regards the individual bound by the fixed law, the, the material world we live in, and is what I had wanted to focus upon all along. All right. Manley describes the faculty of the pawns on the bottom of his list, but I think it's best that we begin with them. We are told the eight pawns are the sensory impulses of the soul, and I think I agree. A quick search will inform you that all eight parts are stoic in nature and that their origins can be found with Aristotle. Well, that's kind of strange since the writings of Aristotle were apparently lost to the world for nearly 1,000 years, according to the official narrative, that the Dark Ages didn't have Aristotle starting with the advent of the Dark Ages, according to the official narrative. They didn't rediscover Aristotle, I think, until the uh, the Enlightenment. They had Plato, though. Never mind the fact that Aristotle was just stealing from the mysteries anyhow, as Plato taught him by example to do. So uh, actually Socrates did. So look up Aristotle's eight-soul theory for yourself, because 
look who you're dealing with. Moy, that would be me. I'm of the opinion that the eight pawns of chess have already been described for us in the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. So get ready for some uh, scripture here. And now hear me, my children, what things I saw concerning the seven ruakoth of deceit when I repented. Seven ruakoth, therefore, are appointed against the man, and they are the leaders in the works of youth. And seven other ruakoth are given to him at his creation, that through them should be done every work of man. The first is the ruach of life, with which the constitution of man is created. The second is the sense of sight, with, with which arise desire. The third is the sense of hearing, with which cometh teaching. The fourth is the sense of smell, with which tastes are given to draw air and breathe. The fifth is the power of speech, which, with which cometh knowledge. The sixth is the sense of taste, with which cometh the eating of meats and drinks, and by it strength is produced, for in food is the foundation of strength. The seventh is the power of procreation and sexual intercourse, with which through love of pleasure sins enter in. Wherefore, it is the last in order of creation and the first in that of youth, because it is filled with ignorance and leadeth the youth as a blind man to a pit and as a beast to a precipice. Interesting. Besides all these, there is an eighth Ruach of sleep. So there you go. There's your eight pawns in case you were wondering why there are only seven. So let me say that again. Besides all these, there is an eighth Ruach of sleep with which is brought about the trance of nature and the image of death. So he is saying that there are eight ruach. With these ruachoth are mingled the ruachoth of error. First, the ruach of fornication is seated in this nature and in the senses. The second, the ruach of insatiableness in the belly. The third, the ruach of fighting in the liver and gall. The fourth is the ruach of obsequiousness and chicanery. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. The through of officious attention one one may be fair and seeming the fifth is the ruach of pride that one may be boastful and arrogant the sixth is the ruach of lying in perdition and jealousy to practice deceits and concealments from kindred and friends the seventh is the ruach of injustice with which there are thefts and acts of rapacity that a man may fulfill the desire of his heart for injustice worketh together with the other ruach by the taking of gifts and with all these, the Ruach of sleep is joined, which is that of error and fantasy. This comes from the Testament of Reuben, chapter 1, 11 through 31. What an epic read was that? Uh, you see dualism all over that, right? There's these, you, so imagine you got your eight pawns, your eight pawns, they're opposed to each other. These Ruachoth are opposed with that Ruachoth. One is hoping to devour and destroy the other. If this army of pawns takes over this pawn, then your body, you are destroyed. Right, your your any good ruach within you is captive is is taken over by an evil uh, type of ruachoth. At first, Reuven only describes seven ruachoth. That's one short of Aristotle's eight. Close, but no cigar. Well, let's keep reading. He then describes seven others. Seven were given to the soul of man of creation that he might do good work through them. The other seven were brought in to corrupt every good ruach. Tell me that's not dualism. Oh, that's dualism, all right. Black and white, darkness and light, evil and good, opposing each other in true checkerboard fashion. But then there is one more unaccounted for. The eighth is the Ruach of Sleep, which is described as a trance state in the image of death. So if you, you know, if you, if you lose all eight of your, your pawns, that is an image of death itself. You have lost all of these senses. They're gone. And they're also the most vulnerable on the board. Uh, all of these senses, you see, they're very vulnerable. That's why the pawns are so easily destroyed. The shortest explanation is that the pawns represent life, sight, hearing, smell, speech, taste, and procreation in dual conflict with, and follow along with uh, Testament, uh, Testament of Reuben, fornication, gluttony, fighting, acting pride, lying, and injustice, each of which produced the eighth pawn, death. Capiche? Makes sense? Not surprising then to learn that the pawn is the most vulnerable, as I just said, especially when it comes to repelling an attacker. This is also why it is so important that the pawn, having defeated his dualistic counterpart and overcome the obstacles necessary to complete his journey across the board, can be crowned in exchange for a player of higher movement and value. All right. So if you master one of these sense, senses, and that is the idea that you move across the board, you can now graduate to something better, to a bishop, a pawn, a, you know, a queen, so on and so forth. You can't be a king because 
as you can see, king is death itself uh, or your very life itself. Next to the bottom on, are, are you guys not entertaining? You guys not enjoying this? Next on, on the bottom of Manly's list is the Rook. That one is self-explanatory as ever and that the physical body is being is described. By now you have been made well aware that the resurrected saints did not require the cathedrals and the castles as well as the grand palaces that they built, which is why getting up and leaving them wasn't an issue. They were built for the purposes of nation healing, thereby repelling the unclean Ruakoth and the darkness that remained in the barren places. If the, if the nation didn't want them or their blessings, then they could have their castles and repurpose them according to the curse. Their chessboards, though, they totally took those with them on the ships up to the hidden wilderness. All right, Manly refers to the, uh, that should be self-explanatory on the Rook. Um, Manly refers to the night as vitality and then leaves it at that, expecting our imagination to fill in the rest. I much prefer the word chivalry, which outlines the moral conduct of a knight. Come to think of it, the very word chivalry comes from the French uh, chevalier and literally means knight or horseman. Isn't it interesting that the knight's chess piece is represented by a horse? Where would the knight be without one? On an esoteric level, it is the horse which represents the mortal body, complete with its associated energies and emotions, aka the vitality which Manly described, while the horseman embodies the higher divine self, which must master the body or else be muted by it. Read your Arthurian literature. The knight is not perfect. He often, and I've been reading a lot of Arthurian literature recently, really, really fascinating stuff. The knight is not perfect. He often takes wrong turns and fails at his mission, as was the Grail Quest, though the chivalry codebook indicates that he is not only on a path towards perfection, but that he will die trying. All right. So think of having to like master a horse, right? But in this scenario, when you see the, the knight horse relationship, the horse itself represents us, our immortal self in the 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 the, the physical land that the laws of this land within this in, within this realm. Whereas the night itself is our, our divine soul, our higher self. It's who we are. Uh, to be uh, chivalrous is a code where we are trying to attain that, right? In, in, in Hebrew terms, in Christian terms, if you want to go that route, we can say we are, we are aspiring to be sons of Allah Hayyam, right? We are following in the footsteps of Yahushua HaMashiach. He came to show us the way. He came to show us the higher self, the, 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 the higher law, the, the, the law of heaven, which is the Torah, right? It, it all it all comes together. I mean, you could hate esoteric stuff all you want. Some people out there do, but it you can't avoid it. It it, it all it all lines up, in my opinion. Oh, and one more thing. I would be negligent to pass up on the movement of the night, which is L-shaped. The Lodge brothers are all over that one with its square and compass symbology. Uh-oh. Knights are mobile, free to roam about the country, and so were the Freemasons. Whoops. Well, I give up. Looks like my back is pressed to the wall. I guess I should go home now and retire in defeat. Or I might I make another suggestion. It's my paper, and I will do so if, if I please. I'm thinking this will involve a peek at another one of our Masonic inheritors. This guy right here. 33 degree alert. The only Confederate military officer honored with an outdoor statue in Washington, D.C. belongs to Brigadier General General Albert Pike, as if that's not suspicious. Freemasonry describes itself as a, quote, beautiful system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols, unquote, puke. All, <clears throat> excuse me, I almost just puked in my mouth. All of which, I need more coffee here, hold on. All of which correspond with numbers of three. For example, the three great lights of masonry can be found illustrated on its familiar symbol, which involves the square of the compass and the letter G. Many suspect the G stands for God, or more specifically, the volume of sacred law. That's their idea of God, the volume of sacred law, which very well may be the case. Though, for all I know, it describes geometry or even the sexual reproduction energy found in the G spot. I'm sorry if that was too descriptive for some people, but... I don't know. I look at that again and tell me it's not. Uh, well, here's what the general had to say about it. Return now with us to the degrees of the blue masonry. Uh, 
And for your last lesson in Freemasonry, receive the explanation of one of their symbols. You see upon the altar of those degrees, the square and the compass. You guys all know the square and the compass. You see it on all the cars that never seem to get pulled over by the police officers. And you remember how they lay upon the altar in each degree. The square is an instrument adapted for plane surfaces only and therefore appropriate to geometry. Well, that's interesting. Or measurement of the earth, which appears to be and was by the ancient and was by the ancients supposed to be a plane. The compass is an instrument that has relation to spheres and spherical surfaces and is adapted to spherical trigonometry or that branch of mathematics which deals with the heavens and the orbits of the planetary bodies. The square, therefore, is a natural and appropriate symbol of this earth and the things that belong to it, are of it, or concern it. The compass is an equally natural and appropriate symbol of the heavens and of all celestial things and celestial natures. Isn't that interesting? He says one is flat and one is round. Hmm. Um, did Albert Pike just admit to the fact that the earth is flat? I'm pretty sure he just said, but we've all been saying in these parts for years, the earth is flat. Incredible. For Albert Pike, the answer as to the shape of the earth lies with the ancients. Hmm. It just goes to show that the Freemasons are straight up lying about their post-millennial inheritance while dangling their flamboyant truth in plain sight symbol symbols in our face so they're smearing us with it and telling us to deny it precisely like our own material realm the chessboard is flat because our material realm is flat just like the game board and the knights of the kingdom were freed to roam about it but then don't forget what i told you about the knight's horse the horse would would in all probability be the square representing the mortal body complete with its associated energies and emotions whereas the knight would best be represented by the compass. So remember, the, the square and the compass we're talking about. Do I need to scroll up here and show you a picture of the square and compass again? You guys all know what it looks like. We're talking about this. Uh, we're talking about the, the this down here would be the horse and the, the, the knight would be on top with the, the G between them. I'll let you fill that in, your own imagination. Where was I? Um, Okay, so whereas the knight would best be represented by the compass straddling the horse or square with G for God or geometry or G spot in between, indicating the higher and divine self, hoping to employ the spiritual law of chivalry to retrace his steps towards the heavens. Got it? You can replay that if you need to, or just read the paper if you need to read that again. It makes total sense to me. If you guys have questions, let me know. In times like these, I am reminded of the rules of chivalry as put down in Book of Britain. Supposing you haven't been part of the uh, prior conversation, Book of Britain is said to derive from the teachings of Joseph of Rama. Most simply know him as Joseph of Arimathea. He was considered the father of the faith in Britain. I personally suspect the rules of chivalry were jotted down in preparation of the coming kingdom, or more astonishingly, that they were actually penned during the millennium. And that's one of the amazing things about the Book of Britain. It, it, it's, it plays out like the Book of Acts. Uh, it's the, the Acts of Joseph of Arimathea in Britain and then it starts delving into like chivalry and the laws of knights for the kingdom. Really fascinating stuff. Not sure which you are. Uh, well, let me repeat this again. Um, I personally suspect the rules of chivalry were jotted down in preparation of the coming kingdom or more astonishingly that they were actually penned during the millennium. Okay, Don't let that escape you. Not sure which you are free to decide. I don't know myself. I won't be quoting from the entire list, though, in light of our Masonic inheritors and the chessboard they claim as their own, there is one passage which most definitely applies here. Nobility and honor are words much abused, but in truth, nobility is not bestowed by birthright, but resides in the soul. And honor is not a thing bartered among kings, but comes from a sense of goodness. Remember, this is a conduct for knights. The, the horse trying to, you know, uh, nab the higher self of chivalry. Men sell their honor for gold. And nobility is conferred on those who have done nothing more than their duty. This is wrong. When titles are given as the reward of true selfless service, when he who serves his fellows well is ennobled, both giver and receiver are raised in stature and the realm benefits. When they who inherit titles also inherit the virtues which earn these, then all is well. But when he who inherits, to whom they descend, is unlike he who earned them, then they can no longer be born with honor. 
Honor and nobility in their true sense are not things which can inevitably be inherited. They are not in the blood. The man who, so you can't inherit this. You cannot inherit chivalry or honor or nobility. The man who, being without merit himself, appeals to the actions of his ancestors for his justification is like a thief claiming justification in his possession. What good is it to be to the blind that his parents could see? Or what benefit to the deaf that his grandfather heard? Is that more foolish than that a, than a mean-hearted man should claim nobility because his forebears were noble? A man who serves the people will has no need of ancestors. The noble mind does not derive pleasure in receiving honors, but in deserving them. It is not better than men, is it not better that men say, why has this man not been honored by the king than to ask why he has been? Ouch. Did you guys just see that? So it is better for you to not be honored and to live a life of chivalry for the sake of living a life of chivalry and for people to, say, to recognize this at one point and go, why is this man being ignored? Why is no one paying attention? Why do all these other people get noticed and this guy doesn't? And yet the worst question is, why is these other people being noticed? That's the worst, that's the worst question to have. It's better to be not known and be chivalrous than to be falsely known as chivalrous. I speak to knights who surely of all men are the most noble. Book of Brits in chapter nine. Uh, if you guys haven't read Book of Brits, and we sell it in the store uh, under Book, Book of the Illuminators, uh, and we put the Book of Brits in afterwards. It's an incredible book. Being a knight has little and nothing to do with one's birthright and everything to do with the health of his soul. Hence the checkerboard dualistic battle. I highlighted my favorite part as usual. The man lacking merit is a thief if he claims inheritance in his ancestors. Don't do that. Don't be like our inheritors. Be a knights of the realm, the, the flat earth checkerboard, aspiring to unite your higher self with the moral, becoming more and more like who? Like Husha Hamashiach with each passing day. Basically walk as he walked and be chivalrous. Normally the bishop would be an odd contender for the field of battle. Though you and I by now, though you and I know by now that it's a cosmic battle being waged, with the prize of victory being the self. Manly suggests the bishop represents our emotions, which is why it moves on the slant. Summing up his role with emotion is fascinating, though left to its own devices, I can't help but think he's missing the mark. The fact that triangles have three sides gives it spiritual meaning. An equilateral, well, let me scroll down here. An equilateral triangle where all sides are the same and measure 60 degrees is considered perfect, representing manifestation and enlightenment. And of course, the bishop can do this. The word bishop is an old English word, bishop, meaning overseer or guardian. I don't know if you can hear. I think someone's banging on the wall over there. They want me to stop. But we're going to keep talking about chess for a little bit longer. The implication is that he will guide the church into spiritual health and blessings rather than curses, which is precisely what the co-ruling priests of the kingdom were up to. The straightness and range of their movement would therefore also symbolize the righteousness we should aspire for in our actions. So we should aspire to move as the bishop moves. All right, so it looks like we're moving to the queen. Manley describes the queen as our mind which is cute and all, but might I make another suggestion? The queen is our tutor, our comforter, advocate, helper, and guide, as well as our conviction of sin and empower. I've just described the Ruach HaKadosh, referencing a multitude of scripture passages without giving you the chapter and verse. She's, but they're all there. I mean, you can look it up. That's all descriptions of the Holy Spirit. She's also our spiritual fruits and our heavenly clothing, as well as our crown, among many other Bible study discussion points. Look those all up for yourself. I'm not sexually confusing anything either. The mere fact that she is a queen is also a given, seeing as how the Ruach HaKadosh is our mother in heaven. And of course, the millennial kingdom is all about a healthy balance between the masculine and feminine divine. I've shown that in other videos, as exhibited by the age of Pisces constellation. Any questions? We've moved out of the age of Pisces now, the, the masculine and feminine, and into the age of Aquarius. Any questions? No. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Take a moment and think it over. Well, here's a passage to help you decide. I went over this tonight in my Torah portions, if you were there for it. 
I am the mother of fair love in fear and knowledge and holy hope. I therefore being eternal am given to all my children, which are named of him. This comes from Sirach Ecclesiasticus 2418. If you need more evidence as to the Ruach HaKadosh's role as our mother in heaven, then might I suggest you read any number of my books like Bezora Kifa, the Gospel of Peter Commentary. There's another plug for you. I go over the entire chapter as well as many others, all proclaiming her to be the mother of Yasharel, as well as Yahusha HaMashiach, the mother of Yahusha HaMashiach. To make a case here would be a total distraction from the overall chess discussion, but I totally think that this is the, the queen within us, the, the, what we aspire to have, the Ruach HaKadosh. She has all those qualities. Suffice to say, the queen is the most important player on the board. I mean, imagine going through life without the Ruach HaKadosh, right? It, you're at a huge disadvantage. You're, you're not going to get you know a good fruit for one. As my personal playing experience goes, um, the queen is most important. Like Adam with Chatwaha, the woman is the other half of our being. Our soul's reunion with the Ruach HaKadosh is the true gnosis. Whereas uh, material androgyny never rises above its satanic counterpart. Let me just explain this right here. First of all, when we talk about material androgyny, it's going on all through culture right now, right? Where you have men becoming women, women becoming men. We're all supposed to accept this. That is the satanic counterpart. That is a total, that is a, a, a self-God movement where it is, you are putting yourself in the place of God and you're becoming your own God. All right. It's a total corruption of the true gnosis of the red partner returning, or in this case, the being united with the Ruach HaKadosh. And that I say gnosis because gnosis is something that you can't explain to someone. It's only something you can experience. And I know gnosis triggers a lot of people. I talk about this a lot. The fact is, is you can't get away from it. I, I have people say, oh, Noel's a Gnostic. He talks about gnosis. I'm like, what, you don't experience gnosis? They don't answer that question because they know that they do. Uh, you can't explain to someone what it's like to have the Ruach HaKadosh. Many people think they do. And they have rotten fruit. They can't tell the difference. And they go around with just rotten fruit. And we see this in communities. And they're posers. They're fakers. And they're liars. And they're faking gnosis. But it, it, gnosis is like a circumcised heart. You can't, you can try to fake that, but you can't circumcise your own heart. It's, you can't explain what that's like, right? All right. So having the Ruach HaKadosh is gnosis. And uh, androgyny itself is, is the counterfeit. The movement of the queen on a, on a chessboard as well as in our own realm is enough to win the game. Let me say that again. The movement of the queen on a chessboard as well as in our own realm is enough to win the game. So long as we are attuned to the will of Allah Hayam. Without the queen, we feel lost, void of her supreme presence. We might as well be adrift at sea. Every other player is a sitting duck, all waiting to be picked off, waiting to get plucked up and imprisoned by our spiritual opposition, our spiritual oppression. So guard the Ruach HaKadosh. Do not lose the Ruach HaKadosh, our, our queen. Last but certainly not least is the king. In chess, there are only two life choices, the purging of darkness or the snuffing of light. That's it. You either, you either destroy the darkness or they destroy you. He is the only player that can be put to death. Nobody else can. They all go to prison. They can all be retrieved and, and reconquered, but not the king. Uh, as I say here, whereas every other member is in prison and not even a pawn can become a king, telling us of his role. The king is the divine spark within our very soul, right? We we come from Allah Hayam and we, we return to Allah Hayam again. Our bodies are just on loan. As an individual, he is only so healthy or ill as his defenders. And once he is defeated, so ends our life. Game over. The entire game revolves around the final checkmate move. So think about that. It, your own health, your own life is only as good as your own decisions. You're either healthy or ill, right? So all your players are your 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 counterparts your, of, of who you are, and you're either managing them well or not. Given the context that Yahushua HaMashiach is king of kings and lord of lords, and that for a time, his kingdom was declassified to the material realm for, or the material world for a thousand years, was it? 
I'm thinking chess was designed as a way to attune one's very being towards the chivalry as well as the righteousness required to defend the kingdom against the twitching shadows of darkness. I'm not through yet. There is always that one confused person in the room who brings up the many mountains in the world whenever the flat earth is evoked. Yes, we are all uh, aware. Let's just say away. We are all away, apparently. No, well, we are all aware of elevation gains as well as the valleys. But then how many are aware that the playing board can also be squared up into a mountain? Let's just look at it right there. You can see the 3D model of it. It's pretty awesome stuff. Well, you can, I wish there were actually chessboards like that. Wouldn't that be cool if there was actually a, a 3D chessboard like that? Looks to me like we have a ziggurat on our hands. Uh-oh. Must be pagan then. Just kidding. The Millennial Kingdom Saints were trying to pull a fast one and the pranks on us. That or Qbert on the NES was all the rage in the Dark Ages. The very notion that the Elohim lived on mountains, which doubled as doorways into the heavens, is nothing new in these parts. I've discussed it many times. I think I probably even discussed it in my Torah portions tonight. I covered Mu as a cosmic mountain in my Land of Eden paper, which, as you're hopefully aware, happens to be the same as Eden. Elsewhere, the Greeks had Mount Olympus, the Canaanites had Mount Zephon, and the, which was destroyed, uh, basically, Baal Zephon that played a part in the Red Sea crossing uh, when, when uh, Baal Zephon was judged. And the watchers arrived on Mount Hermon. Well, the resurrected saints of the Millennial Kingdom had Mount Zion in the north. And uh, seeing as how this is where I, I tie it all together right here. I hope you guys remember what I talked about, the, the, uh, the elves of Middle Earth and how it ties in with like the, uh, how they, a resurrected saint would kind of like have a dual citizenship. They would kind of, they would, they would inhabit both places simultaneously. In the, in the mortal realm here, you would see them as a mortal uh, when really you wouldn't see their shining, glorious counterpart. So seeing as how the Hidden Wilderness is a class prerequisite, and you've read it top to bottom twice, then I'm I'm sure you're well aware by this point in a relationship regarding the connections between the elves of Middle-earth and the resurrected sainthood. In that paper, I thoroughly examined the resurrection of elves and showed when that happens how they would simultaneously inhabit the spiritual and material realm via the undying, the undying lands of Middle-earth. So what I'm saying here is that you can... You could see that the, the the chessboard can represent both a cosmic mountain and the earth itself simultaneously. It, very likely that these uh, these inhabitants, it was like kind of like embedded in there, like a clue, like they're inhabiting both places. The inventors of the game of chess may very well be giving us the same message. They are alone, they alone were capable of approaching the tree of life so as to retrieve the leaves for the healing of the nations as per Revelation 22 2. Perhaps they were simultaneously straddling both worlds, though like the cosmic mountain on a flat chessboard, the untrained eye could not see it. And I've, I, I showed that example. I love it in Lord of the Rings where when Frodo puts on the ring and he could see into the, the spiritual realm and he could see the ring wraiths as they look in the spiritual realm, which you couldn't see in the material realm, or he could see the elves, uh, the resurrected elves as they looked in the uh, in the spiritual world, and they were glorious, and none of the morals could see that. So that I just I, I love that. And I, I've shown pictures of like some of the people in the Millennial Kingdom. I'm, I'm sorry, the Middle Ages, and going like, what if that was just what they looked like as morals? But you know, that's that's what they were being depicted in art, but it's not who they truly were. All right now, astonishingly, there are 28 squares forming the circumference of the board. So you can see right here, I. Uh, I, I, I added these numbers in here. I counted them up. I did, I did a little uh, finger counting. We start here with one. And we go over here to eight. And then you go down to 15. Then you go over to 22. And then you go back up. There's 28. But if you go all the way up, there's 29. All right. Uh, what, why is that number so familiar, 28? Really, where have I discovered that number before? Hmm. I, too, have read Enoch and seem to recall seeing those digits in there. Give me a moment to look it up. Well, found it. Here it is. On stated months, the moon has 29 days. It also has a period of 28 days. Enoch 78, 10 through 11. Now, some of your Enochs might be a different chapter. They kind of switch around. They do a little switch around. You just confuse everybody. The chessboard just so happens to correspond with the approximate number of days in one lunar cycle, which is 28 at its bare minimum. 
though it, it also says there's on state of months there's 29 so we see the 28 and the 29 uh, so you shouldn't see, have a difficult time seeing the number 29 either, which makes the typical lunar month and shares the one space. But then check out the four corners. We see the numbers 1, 8, 15, 22, and 29, each added to by the number 7. My lunar Sabbath frenemies are going to go eight crazy over this one. They're probably already peeling their bananas so as to smother my face in them because that is how they count on their Sabbath days, you know according to the lunar cycle. A lunar Sabbath only ever and always falls upon the 8, 15, 22, and 29, 29th day of the month. Why am I not a lunar Sabbath keeper then? I keep a perpetual seventh-day Sabbath, counting 77777, though that is a discussion best saved or best served elsewhere. Oh, fine. How about we get into it now? So <clears throat> we see right here in the Odes of Shaloma, because your seal is known, of course, what is your your seal? What is your mark? You guys, some of you know what that is already. Because your mark is known and your creatures are known to it. And your hosts possess it and the elect archangels are clothed with it. The Odes of Shaloma or Solomon uh, 4. Why did I just quote for you Odes of Shaloma? It's because I've theorized in the past that Odes was a testimonial of the resurrected sainthood via my paper there, Odes of Solomon in the Millennial Kingdom. Turned that into a video like two or three years ago at this point. <clears throat> and in that document, we are given a reference to the mark of Yahuwah. Without a doubt, the inhabitants of the kingdom had rejected the mark of the beast, the reason being that they already had its opposing mark Though they both involve the number of buying and selling. Now, this is the thing. Like, this is what's amazing about the Torah, guys, is that people look at these New Testament passages and they theorize. You know, you, there are probably tens of thousands of YouTube videos at this point, all theorizing what the mark of the beast is. And it's always the next thing. It's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. I'm not telling you to do anything naughty, okay? Anything that's irreversible. Uh, but if you just... If you take everything in scripture and you just look for a cross-reference in the Torah, amazingly, it's there. The mark of Yahuwah can be found with the prophet Ezekiel, and it reads, And Yahuwah has spoken to Moshe, <clears throat> excuse me, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Yashorel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign, that's the same word as mark, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahuwah that doth sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. Because you're taking on the mark of the beast, perhaps, if you defile it. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to Yahuwah. So there's that number seven, 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 seven. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Yashorel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for the perpetual covenant, the ongoing covenant. It is a sign, a mark between me and the children of Yashorel forever, forever. For in six days, Yahuwah made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, which is when we're talking about the, I mean, why wouldn't it, it's the seventh day, guys, the 7,000 years, right? Why wouldn't they keep the Sabbath in the seventh day? The seventh day he rested and was refreshed. That comes from Exodus 31. So I don't know why I put there. Um, oh, hold on. Maybe I'll explain. For some reason, I put Ezekiel there when I quoted from Exodus, which was appropriate that I uh, quoted from Exodus because that is the Torah. But uh, Ezekiel talks about the same passage. A sign is the same as a mark or a seal. Therefore, the Sabbath is the mark of Yahuwah. Everyone wants to make sure you have the mark of Yahuwah. Everyone's so concerned about the mark of the beast, but it's like, Maybe we should be more concerned about having the right kind of mark. I could have also quoted from the fourth commandment, whereas Yahuwah tells us to remember, knowing full well that it is the one command which we would snub, redefine, rebel against, and ultimately forget. He does the same thing here. Yahuwah repeats himself two or three times, knowing that our eyes have a habit of glazing over the important parts. The writer of Ode 4, that would be the Ode of Odes of Solomon, is declaring that the seal of Yahuwah was known among his people, and that Alahayam's children furthermore partook in it. Hmm. But then we have uh, passages of scripture like this one. 
I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. Hosea 2.11. The challenge I'm constantly given by the lunar Sabbath crowd is to prove today's seventh-day Sabbath is the same as the one given to us in the creation week. So think about that, right? So there was a creation week where there was a seventh day, and on that seventh day, Allah Hayyam rested. And the question is, is our current Sabbath day, which would be on a 77777 count, would be Saturday in the English. Is the current uh, seventh day the same one as the creation seventh day? That's a very good question. Seeing as how I'm not using the moon to reset uh, my rest every 20 or 29 days. And that's one of the arguments used by the lunar Sabbath crowd. Well, we have the moon to reset our count to make sure we're on the right day. Because the logic is that Yahuwah caused the Sabbath to cease, as we just read in Hosea, thereby breaking a consistent seven-day count. They may very well be right. I don't know. Maybe they are. I, I don't think they're right, but they might be. I'm willing to be wrong. If the, Hopefully they're willing to be wrong. I'm fascinated, however, by the sheer amount of residue we're given to work with. Nearly every major language across the motionless plane, or the checkerboard, describes Sabbath in the seventh day of their week. So this is already review for you if you were in tonight's tour portions. I've compiled a list of many of those languages, but not all, and see for yourself. Okay, so here we have Arabic, um, Armenian, Bosnian, Bulgarian, uh, Croatian, uh, Czech, Georgian, Greek, Maltese, Polish, Portuguese, Romanian, Russian, Serbian, Slovak, uh, Somalian, or uh, Somali, Spanish, Sudanese, Ukrainian, Indonesian, Italian, Latin, of course, Hebrew. They all say the same thing. They all say Shabbat. Like, what? What's going on with this? How in the world is that phenomenon possibly explained? It cannot be. Are you telling me that all the ancient linguists and elite rulers of the earth read their Bibles, properly understood the fourth commandment, and decided to honor it in the language of their peoples? Sure, let's go with that one. Or not. When in the official history did Sabbath honoring ever even happen? Not even it didn't, it's not in the history books. So, why is it there in the language? Not even Yasharal, after they were divorced by Yahuwaha and dispersed into the four corners of the earth, would have the political power to overthrow all of these languages and insert a Sabbath, which they weren't even honoring to begin with. That makes no sense. If I'm not mistaken, Yahuwaha said Yasharal would cease her Sabbath. So, why were they infiltrating every language with the seventh day Sabbath again? Please show me in official history when that happened. It never did. There is no explanation I can find for this except for one. It's like I said, Yahuwah seal was known to the children of Yashrael during when? The worldwide kingdom of Mashiach. Does that not excite you? That excites me. We have ample evidence to show they honored it. In his graciousness, we have even been given that residue today. We can know the mark of Yahuwah. Also quickly, because I know somebody will bring this up in the comments section. I can't guess, I can't predict all the comments that are made, but I can get ahead of a lot of them. The mere fact that the English language says Saturday when the others do not is a straw man argument intended to make the day of our worship sound pagan. I mean, it's like, you know, if someone says, oh, you worship Saturn. Oh, okay, well, which God are you worshiping this week? Thor, Frida, are you worshiping the sun, the moon? What are you, what are you worshiping this week? You can't help it. They're going to fall on someday, right? Modern English is a post-mud flood mishmash of words hardly resembling, resembling anything spoken or written in the kingdom by the old English. I mean, you look at the Welsh language and all that. It's just it's a very, very different language than what we have today. Fun fact, old English developed during the same century as chess. How fun is that? That's when the Anglo-Saxons came over, by the way, the, the Saxons, the sons of Yitchak. They developed the English language. The, the medieval English. Getting back to the 8, the 8, 15, 22, and 29 numbers, the moon Sabbath crowd can in the very least agree with me. And let's all be friends, guys. I mean, you know, they make their videos, I'll make mine. They can very in the very least agree with me on one important point. The four corners of the chessboard do correspond with the lunar cycle in so much that it reflects the high Sabbaths of Yahuwah, which does happen to land on those dates, mostly. The Day of Atonement lands on the 10th, thereby granting a goalie point towards my position. 
my position being that the high Sabbaths are indeed separate days from the weekly Sabbaths and correspond with the moon, whereas the weekly Sabbaths can be counted by the sun. All of this can be summed up in Leviticus 23, by the way. Read it for yourself and then pick a side. But then come to think of it, even the seven-day seven weekly Sabbaths can be tracked on the circumference of the chessboard. So I think that's all I have for this. And I um, just want to go back to this again so you guys can see this. I really want to – I mean, when I, when I discovered this and I started counting this up, I got really excited. I'm like, oh, my goodness. This is uh, – you could track the calendar – on the chessboard you could track the sabbaths the high holy days track the moon the 28 day and the 28 to the 29 uh so chess is amazing there's probably a lot more i could say on it that i didn't even cover in this video this is just stuff i was thinking through stuff i was digging up uh, you know trying to find passages of scripture that you know i i loved when i what i discovered in reuben anyways uh with that i'm going to end tonight's uh, next Friday. Please do consider joining me for the Torah portions. Thank you everyone who has made it a uh, tradition in your household. And uh, of course, I'll have another presentation afterwards to give. I'm not going to tell you guys what it is yet, but it'll be awesome. And uh, I hope, uh, nope, I guess no promises, but I think it'll be awesome. And uh, this week I'll be doing something special too. I plan on Tuesday or Wednesday to do a live Q&A, probably, you know, late at night, and uh, this is a time for I want to be transparent about, uh, you know, some of the kind of the, the crossroads I'm at in life and um, where this ministry is going and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I'll be talking about that. But this it's a Q&A for you guys to come on, ask me any question, anything theologically, spiritually, life journey, anything about me, whatever you guys want. Ask me anything. I'll try to answer it uh, the best I can. And uh, love you guys. Good night. Have a great Sabbath and uh, we can rest. See you guys later.